early in the spring when we round up the dogie. We mark them and brand them and bob off their tails. Round up the horses, load up the chuck wagon, then send the dogies out on the long trail. We'll be tired, oh, long, you little dogie. It's your misfortune and none of mine. It will keep you busy, Bishop. Nature has got the start of you here. But for all that, our native priests are more devout than your French Jesuits. We have a living church here, not a dead arm of the European church. Our religion grew out of the soil and has its own roots. We pay a filial respect to the person of the Holy Father, but Rome has no authority here. We do not require aid from the propaganda, and we resent its interference. The church the Franciscan fathers planted here was cut off. This is the second growth, and it's indigenous. Our people are the most devout left in the world. If you blast their faith by European formalities, they will become infidels and profligates. Well, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at the second part, the second half, more or less, of Death Comes for the Archbishop by Willa Cather. This was published in sometime in 19, 1927. I've um, in the previous episode I talked quite a lot about what I think some of the significance of this of this novel is in terms of a kind of an interpretation of, of New World history or American history in general, and that is the concept of the Marchland, right? That the idea there being traditions come f- came from Europe and, and, and certainly from Africa as well, although that's not the focus of this book so much. Um, we'll see these, you know, it's really thinking about the Catholic tradition, right? And these traditions come over from, from Europe, but they're distant, they're far away. So institutionally, there's not that kind of um, centrifugal force that will, centripetal force, sorry, the centripetal force that will kind of pull those various institutions in the New World towards the center, you know, ideologically, theologically, you know, culturally, whatever. Um, so they kind of go off the one way. So the frontier becomes a, a centrifugal force then that, that kind of pulls these traditions away. And the quote I read you at the beginning of this episode was actually um, when our bishop, our, our hero character, goes to, to visit uh, a man named Padre Martinez, who is notorious for not following essentially the rules and traditions of, the, of, of that, that Rome demands, you know, including not fulfilling clerical celibacy as well as other things and his response is essentially we're a new church we were kind of built in the soil we've come out of this new world soil and we have all the same devoutness and faith that you do we just don't you know do things the same way you do right there's lots of examples of this in in history right i think one of the most well-known in world history is maybe the ethiopian christian church right where um, back when North Africa was mostly Christian, you know, St. Augustine, of course, was from North Africa. You know, the Ethiopian, Ethiopia was Christianized. And then after the Muslim conquests of North Africa and the conversion of those areas to Islam, Ethiopia was kind of broken off from, from the church. And then, you know, as that church emerged, it kind of emerged in its own way, its own logic, its own symbolism, its own kind of artistic style. Even, it's, even the Bible's different, right? there. So that's what this Padre Martinez is talking about here. And that's a big theme of the whole book, right? So if you, if you, didn't, if you weren't here for the previous episode, 
you know, the story of Death Comes for the Archbishop, it doesn't really have a plot. It's just about a, a young uh, priest who comes to this new diocese of New Mexico that was created after the U.S. conquest of, of half of Mexico in the Mexican War. And his huge task is to rein in the church and kind of establish an institutional Catholic presence in New Mexico. And that's what he does. And it's a lot, the story is a lot of vignettes. In fact, it's nine books. called They're called books, but they're all essentially just chapters. Nine, nine little vignettes. And they all deal with different aspects. You know, sometimes they deal with the endurance of Indian traditions. We talked about that in a previous chapter. Or the violence of the frontier. Or the machinations of, of Americans who are taking advantage of, of these people, these former Mexicans, right, who've been forcibly for, you know, brought into the United States through, through the Mexican War. Um, you know, or just the, the, the burden of the frontier and the burden of the wilderness. All these things are discussed, right? And that, this kind of continues on in the second half of the novel, but a little bit more prominent in the second half of the novel is this, this effort to really create institutions. And this is symbolized by our main character, Bishop Latour, trying to build a cathedral in in New Mexico, that's going to be a symbol of his of his power. Um, now, I'm going to talk about the last five chapters uh, fairly briefly, but I do want to mention, you know, who these real people that this story is based off of, because Willa Cather drew this from life. Uh, these her two main characters, uh, Bishop Latour and then uh, and Bishop Valinet, who later became like the the head of Colorado after Gold Rush there. But from the first half of the novel, they're always working together. In the second half, they kind of have to go their separate ways because it is a huge region that has to be managed. Um, they're based on real people who, who kind of did this stuff. So uh, let's look at these characters briefly, or these, these historical figures. Okay, so Latour, our, our main character, is based on Jean-Baptiste Lamy, Lamy uh, born 1814, died 1888. Um, born in France, of course. Um, Let's see, became a priest in 1838. But let, let's read about his, um, this is just from Wikipedia. You can read about his, um, his time as a, as a bishop. Um, Lamy entered Santa Fe on 9 August 1851 and was welcomed by the governor of the territory, James S. Calhoun, and many other citizens. However, Juan Felipe Ortez, a Spanish priest who was responsible for the administration of the Catholic Church in New Mexico, told Lamy that he and his local clergy did not recognize his authority and would remain loyal to Bishop Jose Antonio Lorena de Zubria. All right. Uh, so on July 23, 1853, the vicariate of New Mexico was raised to the Diocese of Santa Fe. That's discussed in this novel. And Lamy was appointed their first bishop. His early efforts as bishop were directed to reforming the new church uh, the New Mexico Church and building of more churches in the territory, the creation of new parishes, and the establishment of schools. He ended the practice of concubinage, widely practiced by the local priests, and he suppressed religious brotherhood societies within individual communities. He participated in the First Vatican Council from 1869 to 1870. Lamy was responsible for the construction of the Cathedral Basilica of St. Francis of Assisi's and Loretta Chapel. Both churches were built in French styles familiar to Lamy. The cathedral's Romanesque revival. All right. Uh, he resigns in 1885. He dies three years later in Santa Fe. So a lot of this stuff is is paralleled quite closely in the novel, especially in this kind of these weird practices going on. Now, in a way, you know, I'm not that sympathetic with 
this kind of centralization, institutionalization. I think it's one of the cool things about American history is that you have this this local diversity and people, you know, kind of doing their own thing here. And I, I think Willa Cather sort of appreciates that too. She is sort of in love with the frontier. But nevertheless, you know, the way Latour is presented is so like larger than life and so heroic, actually. Um, maybe not larger than life is the wrong way to say, but he, he is presented in such a heroic fashion that it is hard not to sympathize with his, his struggles. But through his struggles, we get this really interesting window into just how wild the, the New Mexico, um, you know, sometimes I hesitate to say frontier because it has part of, it was part of the Spanish empire for so long. And, but it was kind of that, that, that borderland area, I suppose. From the American point of view, certainly this was, was part of the frontier. And from the church's point of view, it was a frontier. So they, you know, they coming in and trying to arrange the, the, all these parishes and local priests and things into something that resembles what he was familiar with. You know, it was in, in such a huge area to a size like of Western Europe. Um, so, yeah, but that, that's the real person this is this is based off of. Now, the other guy, Valette, um, it was based on a guy about the same age. Uh, I'm going to butcher this name. Joseph Projectist Mackenbuf. Um, he, he eventually became the first bishop of Denver. Those events are also related in the second half of the book. Essentially, he, when there's a gold rush in Colorado, he's sent there, and then eventually he forms a, a, a diocese formed there too. Um, so, what what does this say about him? So, following that quote, follow, this is week in Wikipedia. Following the elevation of John Baptiste Lamy to vicar apostolic of New Mexico in 1850, Mockenbuff accompanied him and became his vicar general. He served as pastor of Albuquerque and at Santa Fe before being transferred to Colorado. He was thrown from his carriage while descending the spur of the Rocky Mountains and lame for life. Afterwards, he would conclude his letters with pray always for the poor cripple. In Colorado, he organized parishes, procured priests, and by 1868 had erected 18 churches, among them being the first church in Denver. Uh, in, in 1869, he was appointed vicar apostolic of Colorado in Utah. Um, so there, he founded an academy and school for boys in Denver, a convent uh, in, uh, for the Sisters of Loreto. St. Joseph's Hospital, Good House of Good Shepherd, and the College of the Sacred Heart. The Catholic population of Colorado increased under his tenure from a few thousand to upward of 50,000. The way this makes it sound, you know, he's even more successful in many ways than, than Lammy. Um, he dies uh, a year before, oh no, he dies in 1889. Um, in the novel, he dies before, before Lammy, but in real life, he died a, a year later. So anyways, you know, obviously these aren't cookie-cutter copies of these, these people, but they're, they're kind of telling the same story. Now, Valinette, we don't really get his adventure so much in Colorado. He kind of moves to the backdrop in the, in the last couple chapters of, of, of the story. Um, but anyways, uh, let's, let's jump right in and, and look at the, f the final five books, books, uh, as Willa Cather calls them on, in this story. Um, Book five, um, Padre Martinez. This is this is a good one. I really like. I mean, four is my favorite by far. Um, dealing with the ecological dimensions, the public health dimensions of the European contact with this part of the world, and then how Indians responded with their own traditions, showing how 
even when they converted to Catholicism, they often more merge that with their indigenous traditions, right? Which, of course, many people do, right? There are many, you know, Christians who also believe in crystals or ghosts or psychic powers or other, you know, kind of things that don't quite don't quite fit into um, Christian theology, right? Now, Padre Martinez, though, this is really about that question of concubinage, that question of of priests, heterodox views by the frontier priests and and on issues of chastity, on issues of of how they treated the local people, on different theological questions, right? And I quoted that at the beginning again. He the way he he justified it when confronted by Latour was this is our you know, we're from the land, right? Yeah, we're Catholic, but we're Catholics not of of Rome, not of the institutionalized Catholic Church in Europe. We are Catholics who have merged out of the land. So it's almost like an earth religion that's kind of been uh, merged with Catholicism. Now, that just could be an equivocation that that's just justifying his own sin. And that's certainly Latour's point on it. And he basically come down hard on him. But I, I think there's something there. I, I think uh, Pedro, uh, Padre Martinez is not entirely wrong here, that there is something that being in these frontier environments do, does to your beliefs, uh, just, you know, just distance, just distance alone um, does that. I mean, I, I use this example all the time, but like anyone who's gone to college, you know, how hard it is to continue going to services or, or you know, doing the same traditions that your family did. You just, you just stop doing those things. And that's just going to college, you know. It's, you know, imagine going across the seas. This is a theme that comes up again in Shadows, Shadows on the Rock, uh, in a little bit more lighter, lighter story. So, anyways, the the main story of Padre Martinez is um, well. There's f this Father Martinez, and he's got a student uh, named Trinidad, and they're kind of running this this parish. I, I mean, as as their own, doing their own thing. They're not really following orders of of the bishop, and that's what brings Latour there. He's trying there to to basically discipline this this priest. And one of the major issues, as I said, really is, is chastity. And it's not just that he's just doing what he wants and he, he justifies it with some excuse. He seems to have thought about this quite long and hard. He, he says about the chastity issue. Nothing is decided once and for all. Celibacy must maybe all very well for the French clergy, but not for ours. St. Augustine himself said it's better not to go against nature. I find every evidence that in his old age he regretted having practiced continence. Um, now I haven't read Augustine, so in the confessions and, and whether he said this, but I'll, I'll take his word for it. Now the bishop replies saying, "Well, you know, I, I'd have to actually." He says the same thing I just said. Like I'd have to actually look up to Augustine to see what he said there. And then Padre Martinez just responds directly, "Quote: I have I have the telling passages all written down somewhere. I will go." Find them for you before you go. You'll probably read them with a sealed mind. Celibate priests loses their perceptions. No priest can experience repentance and forgiveness of sin unless he himself falls into sin. Since concipience is the most common form of temptation, it is better for him to know something about it. The soul cannot be humbled by fasts and prayers. It must be broken by mortal sin to experience forgiveness of sin and rise to the state of grace. Otherwise, religion is nothing but dead logic. 
And the bishop again replies, like, we can talk about these theological questions later, but my job is to reform practices as quickly as possible. And this is when the, the father replies with his, his line about how our religion comes from, from the land. And he goes further. He, he kind of lectures the bishop a little bit more on this, saying, and you know nothing about Indians or Mexicans. If you try to introduce European civilization here and change our old ways, our old ways, to interfere with the secret dance of the Indians, let us say, or abolish the bloody rights of the penitents, I foretell an early death for you. I advise you to stand, study our native traditions before you begin your reforms. You are among barbar barbarous people, my Frenchmen, between two savage races. The dark things forbidden by your church are a part of Indian religions. You cannot introduce French fashions here. What I find fascinating about this is he, he uses the we when referring to these the Mexicans, um, the, the Americans, but he calls him. He seems to call himself barbarous here, and he doesn't seem to have a. He he's not ashamed of that. He he thinks he sort of admits that this their frontier practices are barbarous and they are heterodox and they are mixing Indian things with Catholic things. But he's he's really proud of that, and he thinks that's that's kind of an achievement of of America. So a really really wonderful passage here, and. Eventually, um, Latour decides he's got to replace him, and, and he does. He just, you know, this guy's unredeemable. He's not going to change, so he replaces him. And then uh, Padre Martinez goes ahead and forms a schismatic church, forms his own um, parish where he, perform, where he does things his own way, right? A, a, common, a common thing in the Protestant tradition, you know, a little bit less common perhaps in, in Roman Catholicism because of the institution, because of the hierarchy. But it's, it's, it's very much a Protestant thing, right, for there to be some reform in a church and then a group, of, a group break off because they don't like the way they're going. So anyways, that's the story of Book 5, is, is how Latour learns about these practices, replaces the, the priest, and then there ends up being kind of a civil war between the two, um, two factions. You know, not violent, but like a ideological, a theological civil war between the two. I think what eventually happens is Martinez dies, and then that that kind of ends the the schism. But it, this is the kind of thing Latour must have been dealing with quite a lot. This is just one vignette we get, but the implication is that this is something he faced again and again throughout New Mexico as he tried to rein in these these churches. Um, and then starting with chapter 6, book 6, Donna Isabella, we start to get the story of the building of, of the cathedral that is going to house this, this diocese. Um, and that's how the chapter begins is Latour really expresses his most keen ambition, quote, his very keen worldly ambition to build in Santa Fe a cathedral which would be worthy of being naturally, in a, of sending naturally beautiful. As he cherished his wish and meditated about it, he came to feel that such a building must be a continuation of himself and his purpose, a physical body full of his aspirations after he has passed from the scene. Early in his administration, he began setting aside something from his meager resources for a cathedral fund. But th in this, no, he was assisted by certain of the rich Mexican rancheros, but no one as much as Don Antonio Olivares. So he's going to be the main patron of this, of this cathedral. Now what's interesting is later on when we get the architectural plans of the, of the church, it's going to be in this Romanesque style, this French neo-Romanesque style. Not in kind of a Southwest style. 
So it's it is bringing kind of his perspective in, right? But I wonder, and I haven't seen this church, obviously, the one that's based on it in real life. You know, does it really fit into the setting of of the Southwest? You know, why not build it in kind of the Puebla style, or why not build it where you kind of combine the European style with the the Southwest indigenous style, right? That doesn't seem to be in Latour's character, though, who very much is kind of a French, you know, clergyman trying to to bring discipline to Europe, you know, European style clerical discipline to the to the frontier. Um, but nevertheless, you know, kind of a, the way it's said here is, you know, he wants something uniquely worthy of this setting. So why not use local local styles? Well, anyways, the main story in, in book six, Donna Isabella, is this Don Antonio Oliveres, um, eventually he dies. And then there's a legal conflict over the inheritance where the basically that guy's brothers fight for it. And the main point of contention and it goes back to the fact that these marriages weren't formalized by the church in those in those early days children weren't necessarily baptized they didn't have the records right so it's something that Latour spends a lot of time doing and you see the importance of doing those things just from a kind of a, a legal bureaucratic standpoint later on is that you know it wasn't clear that the daughter was old was or didn't wasn't clear that she Donna Isabella was old enough. I guess she looked very young and beautiful. It wasn't clear that she was old enough to to be the mother of the child, and therefore there was this question whether she was a legitimate heir of the estate. Now Donna Isabella wanted to pass on this estate or a big part of it to the church to build this cathedral to carry on her husband's plans, right? So that that's why Latour has an interest in it, right? Now they so these. These brothers come trying to claim the estate, and the real point of it, all she really has to do to to prove it is to prove that she's old enough to be the mother of her of her daughter. But alas, she doesn't really want to confess her age. She doesn't want to confess how old she is. And then uh, the solution that comes out is finally, well, what's the youngest you can be and still be the mother of this? of this woman and they figure on that date I think it's like 52 or something and she confesses to be 52 not, not, a, not a second older and then you know she inherits the estate and it's implied that these estates then move on to to the to the church so this is kind of a fun little aside thing but it's connected to this building of, of the cathedral but I like this story it's uh, it's a fun little story about uh, the the realities of law on the frontier. You don't really have records for a lot of things like marriage or, or, or child, you know, when children were born or, or those kinds of things. Now, chapter seven, book seven, the great diocese is, is one of the, the heavier chapters. This, I think, this is the final one, the one where he finally dies, um, you know, fulfilling the title of the book. Um, you know, they're heavier chapters and they're more about the internal sentiment and feelings and thoughts of, of Bishop Latour. Um, the setting for this chapter is the Gaston Purchase. The Gaston Purchase was, you know, so, sometime after the, the Mexican War. I, I think it was, was it after the Civil War? Right before, maybe it was right before the Civil War. This little slip of land, you know, I think part of Arizona and a little bit of New Mexico, maybe even a bit of California are part of this. It's, you know, it was purchased by the United States. For a decent chunk of money, I think what 
in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the United States, you know, did give money to Mexico for the land they were stealing, you know, a certain amount. I think the gas purchase was the same amount of money, even though it was a little piece of land. But anyways, the, the introduction of this, this territory expands the diocese. So that's, you know, it's a small bit of land and there's probably not that many people living there, but it is a task for Latour to incorporate this into his, into the Santa Fe diocese. Um, so in the context of this, we get Latour's internal thoughts. Part of it dwells with how he met, met his companion Valnet, uh, how they decided to to join the church. You know, they kind of joined, decided together to to join the church and become priests. Um, but Valnet's often off on different missions, right? The same way Latour is. So he's wandering about um, the southwest. And a lot of this chapter dwells on the loneliness of Latour in this, this setting. Now, he loves the West. The real character stayed there. They didn't return to France for a long term. Uh, this guy in the novel stays in Santa Fe. I think he, he retires. He goes to France, but he comes back, right? So he really has this, this deep feeling of loneliness. So it, it's like Christmas time, and Valinette's off uh, to Arizona, and this is what Willa Cather writes. Quote, Bishop Latour had been going through one of those periods of coldness and doubt, which from his boyhood had occasionally settled down upon his spirit and made him feel an alien wherever he was. He attended to this, his correspondence, going on the rounds among his parish priests, held services at missions that were without passion, superintended the building of the addition of the sisters' schools, but his heart was not in these things. One night, about three weeks before Christmas, he was lying in his bed, unable to sleep with the sense of failure clutching at his heart. His prayers were empty words and brought him no refreshment. His soul had become a barren field. He had nothing within himself to give his priest or his people. His work seemed superficial, a house built upon sands. His great diocese was still a heathen country. The Indians traveled their own old road of fear and darkness, battling with evil omens and ancient shadows. The Mexicans were children who played with their religion. So he feels this, not just loneliness, but a lot of doubt about what he's trying to do here. And now we're, we're reminded of the importance for him of building the, the cathedral, because that's going to be something permanent, something stable, something to be a symbol of, of Rome. And maybe here we see a clue about why he wants to build it in the, the Romanesque style. Now, one thing that seems to revive his, his commitment to what he's trying to do here is, is the person. And, and he meets this woman named Sada, who has been, you know, just one of many other uh, New Mexican faithful who really don't have access to religious services, who's, who's kind of, you know, just not have that contact with the church. And he performs these religious sacraments for her, confession and communion, and, and, the, and it kind of revives her faith. And his experience of this revival of faith in this woman is, is something that, that really kind of revives his, his, his spirit from his, from his bit of a depression. So again, this chapter, The Great Diocese, even though it, its title implies the, the, the huge region that he's covering, it's really internally about his own struggles. And I think these are connected. His, his destiny and his fate is connected to that of the, the, the diocese. Um, and and, right, and he's the creator of it. I, I think that's it. It's all about him, but he is the one who creates this diocese into what it, it is. Because prior to him, it was just a, a, a fractured, dis decentralized uh, collection of, of parishes and, and heterodox traditions and, and kind of a big 
a big mess from the church's point of view. Wonderful in my point of view. I mean, kind of almost beautiful in its in its in its anarchy. But you know, obviously, a, a priest trying to bring some order to this frontier couldn't handle that. Um, but yeah, so this chapter is it's not just about Latour's faith, but his relationship to the the diocese overall. overall. Um, there's a little bit here about the relationship between. Um, the church in the Navajo as well. And the Navajo are presented as kind of the more obstinate of the of the local people in, in terms of like converting to the to the to the faith. Uh, quote, in the working of silver or drilling of turquoise, the Indians had exhausted patience. Upon their blankets and belts and ceremonial robes, they lavished their skills and pains. But their conception of degradation did not extend to the landscape. They seemed to have none of the European desire to master nature, to arrange and recreate. They spent their ingenuity in other directions and accompanying themselves to the scene in which they found themselves. This was not so much the, from indolence, the bishop thought, as from an inhibited caution and respect. It was as if in the great country were asleep and they wished to carry on their lives without awakening it, or as if the spirits of earth, air, and water were things not to antagonize and arouse. When they hunted, it was with the same discretion. An Indian hunt was never a slaughter. They ravaged neither the rivers nor the forests, and if they irrigated it, they took as little water as they would serve their needs. The land and all that they bore, they treated with consideration. Not attempting to improve it, they never desecrated it." Unquote. Contrast this, contrast what, that, what Catherine was writing there with the effort to build a huge cathedral, right? Um, to change the landscape into something European. Or, you know, and the, the Navajo, although even less Christian than many of the other people in the region, it's, the perception here is that they're closer to that. And I'm reminded of what uh, Padre Martinez said about how our religion comes from the earth, right? And here we have the Navajo presented as, as born harmony with the earth compared to the Europeans and either other, other Indians and, and the, the other New Mexicans. So there's an interesting role throughout this novel of, of the Navajo. It's just a few passages that are mentioned, but, um, you know, especially from this kind of ecological dimension, contrasting with what the bishop's trying to do. And the very next section, pretty much the next page, begins book eight. And the first thing we hear about is the cathedral again, the cathedral, uh, the great goal of Bishop Latour. And that's, so chapter eight is called Gold Under Pike's Peak. And it deals with the efforts to, you know, building the cathedral, finding location. But then they hear news about a gold rush in, in Colorado, right? So this is going to bring a lot of people, a lot of um, people from the U.S., from other parts of the U.S. are going to come to Colorado, settle in there. And that's going to change the, that, that frontier area. And it's going to require greater care from the church to administer and to manage, right? And I already read you what the, the real guy that Valentin is based off of, what he, what he did in, in Colorado, created a whole new diocese there, the Diocese of Den Denver. Um, and from this story's point of view, Valentin just sort of leaves. He goes off and moves to, moves to Colorado, and he kind of leaves the story. He's still in the backdrop. He kind of wanders about um, and travels a lot, and, and he's actually got this cart, he builds this cart before he leaves. That's going to be his his traveling companion throughout, and it, it becomes almost legendary how this cart wanders about um, the New Mexican territories, right? But 
it means that Valnet's going to have to go and be a full-time clergy, you know, basically a full-time bishop in in Denver and not going to be able to be close to Latour. So it's kind of the, the ending of their companionship. To kind of give an impression of how different Colorado is from the rest of the of the Santa Fe uh, diocese, uh, Latour thinks of a, of a case of a, of a murderer he met, a young boy, tw- uh, a young man, 20 years old. Um, so was it? He got into some scuffle over cockfighting, right? And and killed a guy. Um, and so, quote, unfortunately, the American judge was a very stupid man who disliked Mexicans and hoped to wipe out cockfighting. He accepted as evidence statements made by the murdered man's friends to the effect that Ramon had repeatedly threatened his life. When Father Valnet went to see the boy in his cell a few days before his execution, he found him making a pair of tiny buckskin boots as if for a doll. And Ramon told him that they were for little Santiago in the church at home. His family would come up from Santa Fe for the hanging and they would take the boots back to Kimoya, or perhaps a little saint would say a word for him. Rubbing oil in his boots by candlelight, Father Valnet sighed. The criminals with whom he would have to do in Colorado would hardly be of that type, he told himself. So sorry, I think I said Latour told the story, but no, this was Valnet's story. But just the, the impression is it's going to be much more rough up in, up in Colorado, especially in this gold, gold mining frontier. You all know how those gold mine towns are. Um, so he builds this carriage and he prepares to withdraw and then he travels around. Um, and, and so that's, that's the main story of, of chapter nine. Uh, and then we get chapter or chapter eight and then we get, um, book nine, chapter nine, death comes for the archbishop. That's of course the title of the novel. And, you know, if you were, you know, obviously he dies at some point, um, uh, this is maybe the most complex chapter. It actually, it's, it's full of flashbacks. And again, like chapter seven, it's very much about Latour's internal uh, feelings. Um, you know, and it's not told in a linear fashion. Uh, we're told like basically on the first page that he dies, but he, he, we don't actually like hear about the death or witness the death until later in the chapter because of the nonlinear way this chapter is structured and because of all the flashbacks um, through there. Now the heart of it though is the connection uh, between Latour and, and New Mexico. Now partially because he's he's been there through for this 40-year period which underwent all these massive historical changes in the frontier, you know, the the change of ownership from Mexico to the United States, the, the introduction of the railroads, the arrival of, of Anglo-Americans from, from the East coming in, all these different changes taking place. Uh, quote, and the darkness faded into the gray of a winter morning. He listened for the church bells and for another sound that always amused him here, the whistle of the locomotive. Yes, he had come with the buffalo and he had lived to see railroad trains running into Santa Fe. He had accomplished a historic period. All of his relatives at home and his friends in New Mexico had expected that the old archbishop would spend his closing years in France, probably in Clement, where he could accompany a chair in the old college. That seemed the natural thing to do, and he had given a grave consideration. He had half expected to make some arrangement the last time uh, he was in Avonay, just before his retirement from his duties as archbishop. But the old world had found him homesick for the new. It was a feeling he cannot explain, a feeling that old age did not weigh so heavily upon a man in New Mexico 
as in France. And a little bit later, Cather writes, In New Mexico, he always awoke a young man. Not until he rose and began to shave did he realize that he was growing older. His first consciousness was a sense of the light, dry wind blowing in through the windows and the fragrance of the hot sun, sagebrush, and sweet clover. A wind that made one's body feel light and one's heart cry, Today, today, like a child. Right? So, you know, in so many ways, the, the frontier had this intense meaning for him. It, it made him feel alive. He felt the youthfulness of the frontier. I think that's part of the implication in that, in that passage. Um, so um, that's, that's the focus of this chapter. And eventually, of course, he does die. He, he doesn't actually get younger. He, um, Valinet, he gets news that Valinet dies first. Now, the, the real people that are based on, actually, Lamy, the guy Latour is based on, died first. But uh, in the novel, Valinet dies first. And, and um, let's see how the novel concludes. Oh, no, wait, there's, there's one more thing I want to talk about. I want to come back to the Navajo, right? The Navajo were presented as, as, a, as a problem throughout the novel, right? And the Navajo reemerged in the final pages of, of the novel um, in respect to kind of their fate. And here's what Cather says about them. The, middle, the bishop's middle years in New Mexico had been clouded by the persecution of the Navajos and their expulsion from their own country. Through his friendship with Asubio, he became interested in the Navajo soon after he first came to, into his new diocese. And he admired them. They stirred his imagination. Though this nomad people were much slower to adopt white men's ways than the homestaying Indians who dwelt in Pueblos and were much more indifferent to missionaries in the white, in the white man's religion, Father Latour felt a superior strength in them. There was a purpose and conviction behind their inscrutable reserve, something active and quick, something with an edge. The expulsion of the Navajo from their country which had been theirs no man knew how long, had seemed to him an injustice that cried to heaven. Never could he forget that terrible winter when they were hunted down and driven by thousands from their own reservation on the Bosque Rendado, 300 miles away on the Pecos River. Hundreds of them, men, women, and children, perished from hunger and cold on their way. Their sheep and horses died of exhaustion crossing the mountain. Never, none ever went willingly. They were driven by starvation and bayonet, captured in isolated bands, and brutally deported. So, um, Obviously, we have here uh, the story of American empire on the backdrop of this. We can't forget that. And, and Catherine doesn't forget that she's telling a story of empire as well. Now, there's a lot of sympathy for her main characters here, who are also agents of an empire of a source, right? But they don't have the secular authority, at least not the church doesn't have the secular authority anymore, to do the kinds of things that the U.S. government's able to do in the Indian Wars, remove people, push them off to reservations, steal their land, and he, has to, he just has to kind of observe this and face the consequences of that, as much as they may have been a thorn in his side theologically in terms of conversion, in terms of, of, of uh, the effort to convert the, the, the Indians. You know, he, he didn't support these kinds of um, these practices uh, by, by the U.S. Empire. Um, but it's, it's something that maybe could have been developed a little bit more in the novel, but it's certainly there in the backdrop of, of it, is, is how much the being part of the U.S. affected this, this region. Um, and, and that's it. So um, the novel ends with, with, with all of New Mexico, and in fact, all Christians kind of mourning um, Latour. Um, so that's it. That's the novel. But that's come for the archbishop. I, I can imagine it's not for everyone. It, it doesn't really have a, a very clear plot. It's it's really a bunch of vignettes. It's very much drawn from from 
history. Um, but if you're interested in this question of, of how this area became incorporated into the United States and what the consequences of that was for Catholics and for the church, um, you know, I think this is worth looking at, right? Um, it's very much in Cather's tradition of studying the frontier and how it changes, right? The, you know, and unlike a lot of her stories where she focuses on mourning the, the frontier and mourning its, its change, right? Here, by looking at the no looking, having the novel about someone who is in integral in kind of bringing civilization of a type, um, at least in his point of view, to this region of centralizing it, of bringing order to it, of, of, of reorganizing it, right? Building institutions, building, literally building a cathedral. It's harder to have that same um, malaise about the change. There's a bit of it here, but even Latour says, you know, he, he's impressed by the arrival of the, of the railroad. It's kind of when you look at the Navajo, you get this kind of pain about, oh, there's cost of what we're doing here. But um, by and large, it's a much more heroic story about, about the frontier than, than some of the earlier stuff that, that Katha wrote and some of her later novels as well. So anyways, a lot of great stuff in Death Comes for the Archbishop. And, and like all the novels in this volume, a very short read. I think it's only about 160, 70 pages. So next up, I'll be reading Shadows on the Rock. This will also be two episodes. Um, Shadows on the Rocks is about late 17th century Quebec, and it basically is a year in the life in, in Quebec. Uh, between Basically, most of it's set between the last ships of the year departing and the first ships of the spring coming back. So it focuses on this winter in, in Quebec uh, in, the, in the late 17th century, right around the turn of the 18th century, and how, you know, it's just about this town, and it, it focuses on one family, a man and his daughter, and, and their different acquaintances. It's a really nice, touching novel. It's kind of sweet. It, it's not as heavy as some of the other stuff she wrote. Uh, before and after, but it, it's a nice light tale, and there's a lot of interesting things in there, also about the frontier, but in a very different setting. But it continues her interest in in, in French culture and French Catholicism, because uh, obviously uh, Quebec was uh, was controlled by France at the time. So that will be next. But it, for now, let me know what you th thought about Death Comes for the Archbishop. Was there anything I forgot? I'm sure there's a lot of things I neglected to talk about, so please leave your opinions below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com um, and that'll be it for now. Thanks as always for listening. Her mother was raised away down in Texas where the Jensen weed and the Sanders grow We'll feed you up on prickly pear foil and then send you open to old Idaho We'll be kind